Well, we're beginning a new sermon series after the, the trek through the book of Revelation. Uh, today we're beginning a short sermon series called The Ones Less Traveled. The three shortest books in the Bible are Second John, Third John, and Philemon. And as Pastor Rick has written on this, unfortunately, because they are short, you do not hear them preached very often. But the letters of Second John, Third John, and Philemon are God's word to His church. And so, because of that, they are worthy to be preached. They're worthy of sermons. In just 53 verses total, over the three books, they cover the great themes of living in the truth, uh, living in love, steadfastness in the face of opposition, and we're going to hear about the transforming power of the gospel in our relationships, in our relationship with, with one another. So this is a good reminder. It's a good time to give a reminder to you from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture... How much of Scripture? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 John, 3 John, and Philemon are God's word to us. And for the next three weeks, we will explore these remarkable books and seek to hear. And church, we want to apply God's word to our life. Question, what would you give up to know the truth? A little linger. What would you give up to know the truth? How much you value a particular truth will dictate what you are willing to give up. For example, if something medically would happen to one of my, my kiddos, Sharice and I would do whatever it takes to care for her needs, right? Uh, this means coming to terms with whatever medical condition and finding the truth about how to treat the issue. A search for the truth about how to treat the medical problem also means dismissing alternative theories or lies that are out there. This isn't going to work. We've got to focus on this. Now, I would imagine if a cure was found and applied, Sharice and I would then become the greatest advocates of that particular truth, that cure. So if you find a particular truth valuable, you sacrifice for it and you defend it. My point is this. What you believe to be true shapes how you live. And this morning, I want to show you from the Scriptures a supernatural truth that shapes your life. In particular, the Apostle John addresses the importance of knowing truth so we talk about that. It talks about walking in the truth and then defending the truth. So when we get to that part, the sermon is going to take an apologetic bend. It's like, what does it mean to defend these things that we love, right? And the truth that John tells us about in 2 John have a value that cannot be measured by this world. This kind of truth is worth more than all the gold in Fort Knox. When you read and study 2 John, you, you realize the questions and problems concerning truth that existed in the first century, when this was written, is no different 
in our own century, the 21st century, right? The challenges confront, confronting a local church during its infancy is still prominent centuries later, so we need to pay attention to this little book. This little letter of just 245 Greek words begins unlike any other New Testament epistle. It's not exactly clear from the introduction who wrote this letter and who are the recipients of the letter. Here's what we read. Randy already read it. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So at first blush, it appears we have an unidentified elder writing to this elect lady and her children. Got to sort that out. First, we do know the elder is the Apostle John because we, have, we do have many ancient manuscripts identifying the Apostle John as the author, even though he does not use his name directly in the body of the letter. It would be like receiving mail, um, you know, snail mail, like old school snail mail, right? And the sender's name is in the top left hand of, you know, the mail. It's, it's up there. It's just not in the body of the letter. So there's no confusion there. John is indeed the author of this letter. And John calls himself the elder. He's not using the term elder in the same way we use the term elder as an office within the context of a local church, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts 20, etc. Instead, John has taken some liberty with the term by designating himself as an individual who has this ongoing relationship with this particular local church. And he cares for this church. He's cared for this church for many years, albeit from a distance. It's, it's no different than what Pastor Rick does, caring for churches in, in Kansas City, in Nebraska, in South Dakota, etc. The more pressing question from the introduction is, who is this elect lady and her children, right? Who is it? The Greek language at the beginning of verse 1 lends itself to having us understand that this elect lady and her children is like a personification. This is no different than what you read in 1 John. If you read 1 John, you read all five chapters, you're constantly bumping into this. John calls us children, little children. It's a, he's done this out of affection for that particular local church, and, and that's what's going on here. Elect lady likely refers to the local church, and children, once again, are Christians who make up this local church. So it seems John is writing to a chosen or elect congregation. If this is true, which I do think it is, then the rest of this letter makes much more sense. Now, John's introduction to this chosen congregation continues in verse 3. Listen to, to this rich introduction. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Now just pause. Will be with us. Do you hear the assurance there? Listen, Christian, you're going through hard times. God is with you, and he will be with you. From God the Father, from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. And this will be important in a few minutes in truth and love. What a theologically rich introduction. If we wanted to, the entire sermon could be expounding upon the grace of God, 
the mercy of God, the peace of God, which comes from believing Jesus as your Savior. We could expound upon the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, but at the very least, we can acknowledge John's theologically rich introduction is a true theological statement about God and about the nature of God. This is what he's going to defend in a few moments. And I use the word true intentionally because there are because in just these three verses we've already seen this theme developing it's the main thread in second john which hold all the other threads together in verses one to three in second john he uses the word truth four times and john does not relent throughout the remainder of the letter so we're going to see what it means to know this truth and how it's connected to our life and john identifies a few particular ways in which truth is lived out. So here is how I propose to navigate the rest of 2 John as we seek to apply the effects of the gospel to truth in our life. First, we've got to simply answer the question, what is truth, right? What are we called to live out? What are we called to defend? And then John's going to be very clear. We've got to walk in the truth, and there's this connection between truth and love in verses 5 and 6, and then finally, when with verses 7 and on, what does it mean to defend the truth? So first, the question. What is truth? It, it's not a question that can be adequately answered in a secular high school or college philosophy, 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 philosophy class. Right? I've been in those classes. And you might be surprised to know that Holy Scripture has a lot to say about what is true and what is not true. We read of this exchange in the Gospel of John right before Jesus was put to death. This exchange per- perfectly sets up the question we need to answer before we can move on. Pilate said to Jesus, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Why did he come into the world? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is the truth? I think Pilate is asking a good question. I do. Uh, The question might have come from a skeptical heart, but it's still a good question. And I I think Pilate isn't asking this general metaphysical question to Jesus. I, I simply think Pilate does not know the truth which Jesus is speaking to him about. The truth that Jesus is speaking of is distinct and is only known to those who hear the voice of Jesus by responding in faith to Jesus. While Pilate never understood what Jesus was saying, Jesus did make the truth known to Thomas in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Here's another exchange where Jesus gives a more direct answer to the question, what is truth? Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You hear that language in 2 John, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What Jesus is saying to Thomas is that to know God means to know Jesus is the truth. 
This is different than knowing truths about Jesus. Let me say that. You can know a lot of true things about Jesus, but do you know that Jesus is the truth? And the life of Jesus reflects his true nature. Jesus embodies the truth. Jesus speaks the truth. Never did a lie come forth from the way he lived or from what he spoke. And it is Jesus who revealed the truth to Thomas. It wasn't a theology class or a philosophy class that revealed the truth to Thomas. It was God who revealed the truth to Thomas. And it's this truth about Jesus imparted by the Holy Spirit that changes everything in the life of an individual. It's the truth of Jesus that we are affected by which is what we read in 2 John. So in the Gospel of John, which I've quoted from, we have the answer to the question, what is truth? Jesus is the truth. Now, in 2 John, what does it mean to live that out, walk that out, apply that? In verse 4 of today's passage, John rejoiced to know that Christians in this local church are walking in the truth. He said, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. When John says some, he likely means that he rejoices at those people he personally knows who are walking in the truth of Jesus Christ. There are reports coming from this local church to John telling him that belief is lining up with behavior. To quote a pastor of old, what we live is what we believe and everything else is just religious talk. Paul emphasizes the same truth when he says in Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Can you see that in this one verse how our knowledge of God is tethered to how we respond to God? And John, the older, wiser, loving friend, encourages this church to continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In verses 5 and 6, John is clear. He tells them what it looks like to walk in truth. So it's not just walking, not just walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now he's going to be like, this is, this is actually what it looks like day to day. Christians, hear this truth, are to love one another well because of what they know to be true. Verses 5 and 6 is how John says it. And now I ask, dear lady, church, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we have heard from the beginning. Since you've been saved, you know this truth, church, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John tells us that walking in the truth means that we love one another, which is a summary of all the horizontal commandments in the Bible. So I want to make several observations that we can apply from verses 5 and 6. While the, while the Bible talks about love in romantic terms, in these verses, love is connected to God's commandments. If you believe in the truth of the gospel, God wants us to love out of obedience to him. Love is more than a mere feeling, but is an act of the will. Now, what I'm not saying is that feelings are irrelevant. They surely are relevant. God gave us emotions, desires, feelings, right? Just as 
Pastor Rick gave his call to worship. We've got to press in and rightly align our feelings with the truth that we were just about to sing. So they do matter. They surely are relevant. But my wife doesn't want to receive flowers from me because it's a mere duty. Right? Here you go. Enjoy. <laughs> she didn't like flowers, so I'm actually off the hook. Chocolates! My feelings and duty need to be rightly aligned with the truth. I want to align my feelings and my desires with the vows, the truth that I spoke to, the sh- to Cherise on our wedding day, vows which I strive to hold 11 years later. Our relationship with God and one another in the church is no different. This is going to sound redundant, but God commands us to walk in the commandment of love. Why? Because there are times when I'm called to love even though someone frustrates me. You ever been frustrated with someone you know? Right? See how very real this is? And yet, we're called to love. You must love one another in the truth because it's good for you, it's good for the church, and it gives glory to God. When we love each other well, a watching world will observe us and see the truth of Christ on display. The connection between truth and love is important to emphasize because people can talk about truth and be unloving, right? Conversely, there are people who dismiss Christian truth in order to emphasize love. You have that other side. I appreciate how one commentator stated the connection between the truth of Christ and the love in the church. Truth and love in the church must join hands and walk forward together. For if you have truth without love or love without truth, you do not have the church. I need to be brutally blunt for a moment. If you were to drive around the metro and stop in at random places of worship, it is likely you will find people who love like the world, but who do not love like Christ. Now, I'm not in the business of church shaming, but I'm going to call out a cultural trend when I see it. Love has become a buzzword in our culture and in the church. To love means, these days, you do not offend. And if loving the truth does not offend, then you can be sure that love and truth will be compromised. And this is the question I've been asking myself more and more to folks who love without truth. What is the foundation of love in which you are speaking about? Because this kind of love compromises and acquiesces to the world that moves away from the truth found in Scripture. And oh, how dangerous and deceiving this kind of love can be. I was just, as we were worshiping, I was just, this verse popped to my head as I was pondering this point in the message. This is the kind of love that was demonstrated for us from, again, the Gospel of John. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love we're called to in the church. Not what you read on CNN or whatever Facebook page that's out there. 
The fact of the matter is this, you cannot make sense of biblical love until you know that Jesus is the truth. If all Jesus is to you is a nice moral teacher, then you will not be enabled to love others the way that God has designed you to love. However, if you obey God's command, verse 6, 2 John, and believe in the truth of the gospel, your capacity to love others will be holy and endless. Love away! Because your foundation is the truth, Jesus. It is very appropriate of John to emphasize the importance of loving one another before warning this local church of lies and liars. Because as we have seen, loving well and upholding truth are connected. They're connected. And so walking in the truth not only means loving one another, but also includes holding on to the truth and defending the truth. What we read in 2 John, verses 7 to 10, is a warning against heresy and heretics and an exhortation for the church to abide in God by believing and living out the truth of Jesus Christ. Here's the heresy that the Apostle John warned this little church about. There were teachers saying Jesus is God, but he was not human. You get that? They're saying that, yeah, yeah, he's God, but he's definitely not human, for sure. That's the heresy. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, did not take on flesh. Excuse me, when I say flesh, I literally mean your body. This belief about Jesus, historically known as doceticism, was the result of taking some core tenets of Christianity. <laughs> you see this today, it just looks a little bit different. Take some core tenets of Christianity, take some prevailing philosophical ideas around the world, and let's put them together and see what we got. They did this to make Jesus more palpable to the people living in the first through fifth centuries. In other words, these heretics wanted to soften what the Bible tells us about the humanity of Jesus so that Jesus did not come across too radical to their sensibilities and their perceptions. And John calls out and pushes back against the lie. He's very clear about the heretical view and he warns them in order to protect them from the lies. Again, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the, now this is super strong, a deceiver and the Antichrist. I'll talk more in a moment about the individuals who brought the heresy, but for a moment I want to talk more about the lie and why it matters to know biblical truth about Jesus. Like this is important. This is the, Talk about foundations of your faith. It's right here. Speaking against the lie, old dead guy, Gregory of Nazianzus, theologian from the 4th century, said this about the importance of the humanity of Jesus in relationship to an individual's salvation. He said, what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. He's pushing back against the lie. What he is saying is that your redemption and salvation in part is established on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And of course, the divinity of Jesus Christ was and is equally important. But the Apostle John and Gregory, who I quoted, were addressing specific lies prevalent during their lifetime. On a very practical level, the humanity of Jesus is why we celebrate Christmas. God coming in the flesh to save sinners, Matthew 1, 21. If Jesus, the Son of God, is not fully human, then there is no Christmas. Don't cut down the tree, leave the lights in the bin along with the manger scene. You can find a different reason to give presents to people. 
brass tacks. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he didn't die in the flesh, and he surely wasn't raised in the flesh. Which means, what do you, what do you got? You don't have Christianity. You got something else. So it's no wonder that John vigorously defends the proper belief about Jesus. You call it his deity. Jesus is fully human. Now, in the 21st century, where we live, right, right now, we need to warn against and defend the other side of the coin regarding the two inseparable natures of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to get bogged down here, but it's important to mention because you might be unaware theology is being worked out in people's lives, whether you realize it or not. Today, few people disagree that Jesus was a real human. No, that was John's problem. That's not our problem. Uh, most people agree that Jesus was a real person who lived in the first century. He died on a cross. Christians and non-Christians agree upon these historical facts. No problem. Instead, what we hear is that Jesus was a good man who lived a good life. You ever heard that? I believe Jesus is a good guy, taught good things, moral, right? So it's more likely you have interacted with non-Christian teachers, co-workers, neighbors, etc., who think Jesus was this good guy, good teacher, etc., but reject that Jesus is exclusively God. That's the rejection today. Which means... We have a person to model, but we do not have a God to worship. Jesus would have been only able to die on a cross and unable to atone for our sin on the cross. And it should go without saying, he would have been unable to rise from the grave and ascend into heaven. In our celebrity culture, we, are, we will hear more and more people saying a lot of nice things about Jesus, but deny the divinity, the God of Jesus. The virgin birth, New Testament miracles, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ are questioned now more than ever. Why is this so appealing to people? Close family and friends of mine, why is this so appealing? Lots of reasons. Here's one. Because it's hard to accept a God who is more significant than yourself. We want to be our own God. We don't Right? We want the independence. As a matter of fact, um, I know that's what I came out of when I got saved. I wanted to be my own God. Admittedly, I have two emotional responses to the claim that Jesus was just a good man and moral teacher. Here they are, admittedly emotional. First, I am not interested in following a good teacher. I am not interested in following a mere moral man. I am interested in following and worshiping Jesus who is fully God and fully man. I am interested in worshiping Jesus who created the universe, Colossians 1.16, and now sustains the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. I am interested in worshiping Jesus, the Son of God, who has the power and authority to forgive and atone for sins, Ephesians 1.7. I am interested in baking all my hope and faith on Jesus because he is the exclusive truth in which a sinner can be reconciled to a holy God, Romans 5.10. If you are worshiping any other Jesus, you are worshiping a lie. Let 
And here's my second emotional response. If you are hearing this and objecting to what I am saying, I want you to hear my heart. I would not be a loving Christian or pastor if I did not tell you the truth about Jesus Christ. It would be unloving of me to withhold from you the truth. As a matter of fact, all Christians need to be ready to lovingly tell others the truth. Jesus Christ. We need to be ready to tell others that Jesus, is, Jesus being fully God and, and fully man is essential to redemption and salvation. Putting faith in Jesus is essential for a sinner to be reconciled to a holy God. Listen, you don't need to have a seminary degree to understand Jesus. We're called to believe. Put our faith and hope on Him. Believe what the Scriptures tell us about Jesus. So I don't want to make this a theology class, but I do not want to breeze by the importance of what we read here and the warning given to us by John. We need to know Jesus is the truth so that we can walk and abide in Jesus. Belief and behavior are always connected. So John not only addresses the lie in verse 7, but he tells us what to do about the liars. He calls them deceivers and the Antichrist. If the theological purpose of this letter is to remind this local church about sound biblical doctrine pertaining to Jesus, then the practical purpose of this letter now emerges in verses 7 to 9. The practical purpose of this letter is simple. Watch out for those who twist and change sound doctrine, which in turn adulterates the message of the gospel. Again, verses 7 to 9. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, That's true now. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Hear this command. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching of Christ, excuse me, has both the Father and the Son. We know from verse 7, there are people preaching about Jesus who do not know Jesus is the truth. And in verse 8, John gives us one of two commands or imperatives found in this letter. Watch yourselves. Watch your doctrine. Watch your life because deceivers exist. Do not compromise the truth taught to you in which the Holy Spirit illuminated to your heart. Watch yourselves. I'm just thinking to myself, what would my life be like if I didn't watch myself? What would I believe if I didn't watch myself? Throw a leaf up in the wind. That's me. Goes wherever it may. And God wants something better for us. We need to, and so therefore, we need to watch ourselves. In verse 9, we read of two kinds of people. The first kind goes on ahead, which I believe refers to those who heard the truth of Jesus but eventually added or took away from the truth about Jesus Christ. In this case, we already know they took away the humanity of Jesus. The second kind of person continues to abide in Christ, and as a result, it says in verse 9, they have the Father and the Son. They're safely secure in His hand. Because of 
John's intention to protect this church from lies, this is a good moment to remind you all that the elders at Sovereign Grace Church take teaching and preaching very seriously. Very seriously. It does not matter if it's a youth group, men's or women's meeting, this pulpit. We want to make sure you are taught faithfully about Jesus from the Bible. Thank you. I'm serious. And so, as elders, it is our great privilege to teach you the truth about Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. It's also our responsibility to protect you and warn you from the lies which attack the gospel. And we want to defend and warn you because lies have legs. I found this quote, which is accredited to Mark Twain. There's, there's a little controversy. Let's just go with it, though. But I, but, I, but I did find it very helpful, regardless of who said it. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. If Mark Twain said this in the late 19th, early 20th century, I wonder what he would have said today in our social media-driven generation. Here's my cultural adaptation to Mark Twain's pithy saying. A lie can travel all the way around the world while the truth is still looking for its shoes. Right? Which makes defending the truth of Jesus Christ and its implications all the more important. I mean, look at what John says about those who teach lies about Jesus. He calls them deceivers and the Antichrist. The importance of protecting the church from lies was on John's mind when he wrote the gospel, which bears his name. Here's what he says to the Pharisees. You are, a, you are of your father the devil. Woo! And your will is to do your father's desires. This is Jesus talking. A man of endless love who died on a cross for our sin. He was a murderer from the beginning, talking about the devil, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Just as John needs to protect this local church, we elders need to protect and warn you as well. Why? Why? Because we love the truth of Jesus Christ. And we love you. We love you. That's why we take preaching and teaching very seriously. It's no wonder, and not a contradiction to the Christian ethic of hospitality, that John tells this local church to not welcome in those who actively preach against the truth of the gospel. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning sound orthodox teaching about Jesus Christ, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in wicked works. Now, John isn't saying to not welcome the stranger in your midst. Leviticus 19, 33, 34, preached that sermon a month ago. It's not what he's saying. John is saying there is no space to help or encourage false teachers in the context of the local church. To invite in and to participate with a deceiver is to participate in wicked works, verse 11. So I have no problem. I have absolutely no problem. Ten times out of ten, I will have a cup of coffee with an atheist talking about Jesus. Sign me up. Truly, sign me up. He should be my wife when the Mormons come to my house. Right? 
We're talking three, four-hour conversations. I'm in. And hopefully you're in. So I'm the problem with that, but I am not going to allow an atheist to come and teach and have an influence in this church. Right? And this further advances my previous point. Our great responsibility as elders is to build you up with the truth and protect you with the glorious truths of the gospel. In addition, we're here to warn you and protect you from lies and attacks that come against the gospel. There's more. There's one more point about applying biblical truth that I want to get to, and my point comes from the conclusion of John's letter. Just as I didn't want to skip by the intro, I don't want to skip by this. I think the conclusion of this letter says something very significant and relevant to all 21st century Christians. Here it is. Truth in Christ and love for others impacts the church and how we should communicate with one another. It seems mundane to talk about, but John sees the need to bring it up. Verse 12, here we go. Though I have much to write to you, and he wrote a lot. Think Revelation, think the Gospel of John, think 1 John, think 3 John, which we'll get to next week. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy, John's joy, this local church's joy, may be complete. John knows for his joy to abound with this church, he really needs to see them face to face. Why? Because God designed us to interact and engage in community, in church community, face to face. The English translation does not do this verse justice. John is saying, I could write to you more, but I'm going to put down the pen, I'm going to put down the parchment, and I'm going to come speak with you. Here's the Greek, stoma pros stoma, which literally means I'm going to speak to you mouth to mouth. This phrase shows us the intimacy of Christian relationships. The application of this verse in our technology-driven age is significant. Just think about how much we communicate via technology. I'm think, I thought about that when I was writing this sermon. All the emails, right? All the Facebook messages, all the text messages. Right? Who, who, who calls you anymore, right? Um, Now, on the one hand, communication because technology is amazing, right? I can have conversations with missionaries all across the world because of technology, and I praise God for that. But communicating with your favorite device has deteriorated our relationship with one another. My relationship with you, your relationship with the other, should be worth more than an email, tweet, Facebook post, or whatever else is out there. Just like John put down the pen and the parchment, sometimes we need to put down the phone and talk Stoma prostoma, mouth to mouth. To, to be clear, I'm obviously not against writing an email or writing or a Facebook post, whatever. It's not my point. But God has designed us to communicate in a better way. Mouth to mouth. That's why we gather, right? That's why you don't do like church on a screen where there's me up there and I'm not here, right? We're called to do this together. God designed us this way. And again, during worship, this came to my mind. I'm just thinking about when Jesus comes back. Do I want to see Jesus like on a Facebook profile? 
or face to face. When we speak mouth to mouth, we are more able to build each other up with the truth. Um, we hold each other accountable with the truth. We protect each other with the truth. Building each other up with the truth is not as effective in all these other areas. While I love receiving an encouraging email, I really do. I'll look at my inbox on Tuesday, you know? <laughs> like, I, I love those. I love it. And I'm thankful for them. What I'm saying is that God designed people to build each other up with the truth of Jesus Christ in the church by speaking mouth to mouth. So as you can see from the book of 2 John, we have this thread of truth, and that is Jesus. And many other threads are connected to that truth. So I'm going to end with this. What kind of application is there here? There's a few I gave during the message. Let me close with this. Well, if you do not believe in the truth of the gospel, this is the best application point you'll ever hear. You can know that Jesus is the truth by repenting of sin and putting your faith, your trust, your hope in him. You will never make a better application point from a sermon ever. And so I, I pray that you call out to God and do that. And for everyone else, it is living out those other three headings, right? A walk in the truth of the gospel. And one way that John tells us to walk in the truth of the gospel is to love one another well. And the fourth heading from today is, is to defend the truth, right? Be, be ready to share. Be ready to talk about Jesus and to defend when necessary. In only 245 Greek words, this little book has given much to think about and hopefully for you and for me, much to apply.